Well, Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to uh, Beth Messiah this evening for the kickoff of our seventh annual Torah conference. Uh, our Torah conference is designed uh, to expose uh, Beth Messiah congregation to the finest of Messianic uh, uh, teachers that we have in our movement. Uh, we, as you know, if you're uh, part of Beth Messiah congregation or know about us, that we uh, place a high priority on understanding the text of the Bible. That's why we place a high priority on biblical languages and on and biblical studies in general, uh, all for the purpose not just of gaining knowledge, but of understanding God's word and growing deeper in our relationship with God so that we can make an impact not only uh, within these walls but outside of these walls and outside of our city and around the world. Uh, every year, uh, Beth Messiah, um, uh, ha we have two conferences, two key educational conferences a year. In the spring, our Messianic Studies Institute hosts our Visiting Scholars Symposium and at this time of year, Beth Messiah hosts our Torah conference. This year, we are blessed to have with us Rabbi Derek Lehman. Uh, rabbi Lehman uh, serves uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the rabbi of Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue uh, in Atlanta. Uh, and uh, Derek is uh, part of, Derek and his congregation uh, are part of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. I know that Rabbi Lehman has chaired, you've chaired the education committee and, uh, and have, have offered seminars and played a role in a variety of different ways. In fact, I remember an outstanding uh, seminar you gave on the use of the internet, right? Uh, and that was for a good reason because uh, Rabbi Lehman has an outstanding website. Uh, if you uh, Google uh, Messianic Messianic oh, Jewish music. Messianic Jewish musings, is that correct? Or Yeshua in context? Or just his name, Derek Lehman, or I shouldn't say just, or only his name, uh, you will find his website, which contains lots of interesting and valuable uh, information uh, regarding uh, the uh, biblical origins of the faith, the Jewish essence and heritage. Uh, of the faith. And uh, if you uh, are hearing words that resonate uh, with the kind of things we talk about, that's on purpose because when you uh, take a look at Rabbi Lehman's website, you see things that, that we talk about and, and that resonate very much with MSI and the courses that we teach and so on. So uh, we are uh, just really uh, very uh, honored to have uh, uh, Derek Lehman with us. The, our theme is Divine Messiah, and that's for a reason. Uh, Rabbi Lehman recently wrote a book called The Divine Messiah, and I will say this now and I will say this tomorrow, that what I find so valuable uh, about your work is that Derek takes the work of many scholars, scholars that you hear us talk about, um, uh, scholars like Richard Baucom, uh, uh, or Daniel Boyarin, uh, and, and others, uh, and makes them accessible to, uh, to all of us. Uh, takes that work and puts it in his own, you know, with his, you know, frames it himself and, 
and uh, does his own uh, you know, original writing on it and really brings out profound truths uh, in a way that I'll just say is very accessible. Well, why don't we pray, and, uh, and then Rabbi Lehman will come, and we'll have our uh, opening session of our 2014 Torah conference. Lord, thank you, God, for uh, this opportunity of, uh, of understanding more about you, of understanding more about your, uh, your word, of understanding more uh, about uh, what it means uh, to embrace Yeshua, uh, the Messiah. Lord, we thank you, God, that uh, you uh, uh, came into this world in such a way that we could know you as we do. We thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, not only have you revealed yourself to us here, but for the last 2,000 years, in varieties of ways, uh, you've made yourself known. And in these days, uh, God, we do indeed thank you for this uh, Messianic Jewish movement. We thank you for the opportunity of being able to study in such a way to really understand your word in context. And we thank you for uh, Rabbi Lehman, Derek Lehman, who has come. We thank you, Lord, uh, that uh, uh, you have raised up teachers among us, Lord, to guide us and direct us in your word. And we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Well, good evening. Well, I want to say, just kind of preface my talk tonight by telling you that when I began looking into the issue of Messiah's divinity, I had an open mind. I was willing to take it wherever it went. You know, in a, in a Jewish setting, I hope that we all understand we are allowed to ask God any question and we're allowed to follow wherever it may lead. And we don't have to be afraid that somehow we're going to dishonor God in that process. I mean, any, any group of people who follow a leader like Moses, who talked to God the way he did, and who didn't accept what God told him the first time, but kept coming back and negotiating until he got a third and a fourth deal that was better than the first one. We should know that uh, we don't have to just submit to the first understanding we have of any issue. And I, I, I personally, maybe some of us will have time to socialize during the time that I'm here. I hope that we do. I'd be glad to tell you my story. I didn't come from a religious home. I, I came from out of a background of no belief at all. And you know, I went through a sort of a paradigm shift in my own faith. Some things that I was told in the early days of my faith, I discovered were not true. I wondered if I would have to throw the entire thing out. And I was willing to follow wherever that might lead. As it pertains to this particular issue, whether Messiah was divine or not, I would have been perfectly fine if I would have concluded that he was not divine. But the more I investigated the topic, the more I became convinced that it really was true. And I want to affirm right from the beginning that when I say that Jesus, that Yeshua, is divine, I'm not saying that he was just an angelic being or that he's the highest of the angelic beings or any kind of semi-divine being. I'm saying that he shares the transcendent uniqueness of God. Now, we're going to have a part in the seminar in which I explain that the early believers and the writers of the New Testament, they were careful to avoid directly saying something like, Yeshua is God. We'll have a whole part where we talk about that. In fact, it's very difficult to make statements about the divinity of Yeshua without some theologian sitting somewhere telling you that you just, you know, violated some principle that some group somewhere decided you shouldn't violate. I, in fact, several times submitted things to David Rudolph and Mark Kinzer 
to see if they thought it was kosher. And in every case, the thing I sent them was something that I would thought, maybe they'll say it's not kosher. And I had a 100% rate of being right. In every case, they said it was not kosher. And I had to say it a different way. So it, it's hard sometimes to just use simple language to talk about this topic, the divinity of Messiah. But I, I came to the conclusion, and I, I hope that I'll be persuasive in talking to you about it, that he is, in fact, divine. And I, I intend for this to be an interactive event. Now, I prefer situations in which I can do about half of the talking and let people ask questions and do you know, about half of the talking. I suspect for this event I might do 90% of the talking, but I hope you guys will do 10%. And at any time, you know, just raise your hand and, you know, or wave it so I'll see you, and I'll be glad to take a question. Now, I might say we're going to discuss that in an upcoming session because I don't want to give away all of my material right at the beginning. You know, you might ask about something I'm planning to talk about, but I'll be glad to take questions. And I intend it to be interactive, and you notice there are some places where you might actually have to fill in some blanks or write. Uh, I don't want to give you everything. I wanted you to, you know, have to listen and participate a little bit, and I hope that you will. And right at the beginning, I want to try to create what might be an aha moment for some people. And I think you have Bibles there in the pews. And if you would take a look at 1 Corinthians 16.22. 1 Corinthians 16.22. Now, I happen to be holding an English Standard Version. I think if you've got a pew Bible, you're looking at a New American Standard. The New American Standard is going to have the word in there that I want you to see. The English Standard Version that I'm holding in my hand, they translated it into English. They didn't leave the Aramaic term. But look at 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. Now, you, if you have the NASB, it probably says Maranatha. Uh, it, by the way, there's even a debate among scholars. Is it Maranatha or is it Maranatha? Scholars aren't even sure where the syllable was originally divided. Uh, and it could have two possible meanings. But it probably means our Lord come. And maybe you've heard before Maranatha is something that someone would say to wish for the return of Messiah. Maranatha, may he return. But you know, there's another possible setting for this. Some scholars think that this is something people would have said when they sat down to the Lord's table and that they were actually inviting the Lord to come to the table and to be present at the meal with all of the believers. And, you know, maybe both meanings are possible. Maranatha. But here's the aha moment I want to create because it's a very common uh, canard that it must have been Gentiles who created the idea of Jesus being God. Because after all, those Gentiles, they just believe in demigods. You know, you've got Hercules and Perseus and the stories of all these, you know, people who were sired by a divine being. Zeus comes down, dilly-dallies with some woman, and a son is born. So it must have been Gentiles who came up with this idea. Well, let's just think for a second. How, well, you know, how Greek is Corinth? That's, this is a letter to people in Corinth, right? Anybody been to Corinth? I actually haven't had the chance. You, you've been there? How, how Greek is it? Pretty Greek, right? Okay. Uh, if you were going to describe the Jewish community in Corinth and compare it to some city in the United States, what city might you compare the Jewish community in Corinth to? I thought Columbus might make a good comparison. I mean, Columbus has a, a Jewish community, but it's not known to be the largest in the world. You know, uh, people don't say, people might think of going to Brooklyn to see a big Jewish community. They don't say, let's go to Columbus to see a big Jewish community. 
So there's definitely a Jewish community in Corinth, but it's probably not the largest. So why on earth then, is when Paul is writing a letter to people who are undoubtedly Greek, is he using an Aramaic term in his letter, and how in the world do they know it? Is it because they all went to the community college and took Aramaic? Is it because Aramaic had an important, uh, you know, Aramaic was an important language of commerce in the ancient world? Why are these early Gentile Greek believers using an Aramaic term, marana, ta? And why doesn't Paul have to translate it for them? Now, by the way, if that was the only example, you might say, well, that's not very, you know, not a very pervasive example. Um, there are two other Hebrew slash Aramaic words that are very common in Paul's writings, two in particular, and they're so familiar to you, you may not even think of them anymore as being a Hebrew or Aramaic word. Any guesses? One of them is amen. Greeks didn't say amen. Amen is a Hebrew expression. Come on, anybody, the last one? Well, does, you know, you're right, hallelujah is a Hebrew expression, but I'm not sure that Paul uses it. I, I might be wrong. Is hallelujah in any of Paul's letters? Abba. See, you read over Abba, and you are so familiar with it. But let's do use the example of hallelujah. You have all these people in America who say hallelujah, right? And if, you, if you'd say one of them, oh, you just spoke Hebrew, they would laugh at you, right? Because that's exactly what happened. These terms came into the language of these Greek-speaking believers because the faith was passed on to them from the early community of believers in the land of Israel who spoke Aramaic. So, I just want to be clear. What we're going to be learning about, the divine Messiah, is not something that Gentiles concocted. I'm going to be making a case that the belief in the divinity of Messiah was early, that there was no controversy about it within the Yeshua movement. It's not a subject for debate in any of the New Testament documents. It is assumed and that it was believed uniformly within the congregations before the New Testament was written. This faith passed down from Jewish believers in the land of Israel to Greek-speaking believers outside of the land of Israel. All right, with that said, I want us to get into the beginning of our topic. We, we who believe in Yeshua should realize that our faith comes from people who discovered something about him after his life on earth was over. When Yeshua was here, he didn't seem to very many people to be a potential Messiah. He was a mortal man, it seemed, in some ways that uh, maybe Messiah would not be. And it was something that happened afterward that changed what people thought about Yeshua. There was a grand miracle, and certain people in Judea and Galilee claimed that they experienced this miracle. And they said that they were eyewitnesses of this thing that happened. What was it that they saw? Apparently, it was very powerful. Because the day that Yeshua was arrested, his movement was reduced to zero. One of my favorite verses, it's a memory verse for me, Mark 14, 50. But then again, I'm a depressing person. Mark 14, 50 says that they all abandoned him and fled. They all abandoned him and fled. The day that Yeshua was arrested, no one believed in him. I would even argue his mother, Mary, did not believe in him. You say, come on, surely the women believed in him. The women went down to the tomb on Sunday morning, and what did they bring with them? Bandages and perfumed oils, because they believed his body was decaying in the tomb. Messiah Jesus had turned out to be a failure. He wasn't the Messiah after all, and it was all going to be over with. 
Now, the Gospels didn't get written down until 40 or more years after these events. But the Gospels faithfully record the experience the way it happened to them. As a matter of fact, N.T. Wright notes this in his books. He says, when you read the accounts in the Gospels of the women going to the tomb and of them coming and telling the disciples about it, you read words like terrified, perplexed. What did the Jewish leaders do with his body? You don't read, hallelujah, it's just like Jesus told us it was going to happen. He rose from the dead. And they don't immediately begin preaching sermons about how we can have life after death because Messiah had life after death. Instead, we read about a bunch of scared, frightened disciples who, it says, when the women first told them, they thought it was an idle tale. An idle tale. But there settled on them slowly a realization. Yeshua was more than they had ever known. Now, what was the grandest thing that they might have thought about Yeshua before all of this? That he was a wonder worker. That he was an Elijah figure. And maybe, just maybe, he was that kind of Messiah who might liberate Israel in a political sense. But this was different. In the first place, nobody expected Messiah to die. At first, it seemed he couldn't even be the Messiah. Not even a liberating. He even seemed to be a failure just as a human liberating type of Messiah. But what happened after was different. Because no one had ever heard of someone coming back from death on their own. And this wasn't even in the resume of Messiah, that he would come back from death. And the resurrection was only the beginning. I'm not saying that the resurrection is the only thing that changed what they thought about Yeshua. If the resurrection was all we had, then it wouldn't get to the full point of our understanding of who Yeshua is. It was more than just the resurrection. We're going to talk about what was it that these early believers saw that so changed their view and gave them such an elevated view of who Yeshua was. Well, we read a statement in the New Testament about Yeshua. It says, God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. By the way, what's the name that's above every name? yod Hey vav Hey. That is the name. Paul quotes this in a hymn. He quotes this hymn, or early creed of the believers, in Philippians chapter 2. What the eyewitnesses of Yeshua came to realize is that Yeshua was equal with God, that he shared God's transcendent uniqueness, that he was divine in the same way that God is divine. Yeshua's name is Hashem, yod Hey vav Hey. Now, I call this the divine Messiah realization, the divine Messiah realization. The reason I coined that term is I wanted people to understand that it was an after-the-fact realization, and it can be described from two perspectives. From below, from the perspective of the people down here who are experiencing Yeshua as a human being, it's the realization that the one who appeared to be a mere wonder worker and teacher is actually equal with God, that he is God alongside God. But from above, looking at it theologically, looking at it in how are we going to understand this in relationship to God's nature, which we thought was singular. Is it still singular? This is going to create us problems for monotheism, isn't it? From above, it is the realization that there is a multiplicity in the divine unity, that God and Messiah are one and the same while being also in some way different. We'll talk later about binatarian monotheism, and I'll explain that. Now, I'm not, by the way, saying that we all have to abandon belief in the Trinity and start believing in the binity. So I should go on ahead and make a, a, a quick statement. 
In the New Testament, we don't have some kind of full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. You can deduce the Trinity from statements that are made there, but the Trinity is a, a deduction that you make from information that's in the New Testament. I'm not going to be dealing in this seminar at all with the Holy Spirit, with whether the Holy Spirit is divine, with whether the Holy Spirit is a separate but identical divine being with Yeshua and God. So we're going to talk about the binity, God and Messiah, in this particular seminar. Now, if we say that Yeshua is divine, this has a meaning for people here on earth. It means we have to understand how the one who was without a doubt human could also be divine. If we say that Yeshua is equal with God, it creates a theological puzzle. God is one, and yet God and Messiah are both one. We have to come to grips with the scandal of this divine Messiah realization. Is it really believable that in some way Yeshua is divine? Is it something we should look deeply into, or might we risk finding out that the faith in which we stand is a fragile web of legends and poorly constructed ideas? Maybe the Goyim thought it up. That's what a lot of people think. Uh, Bart Ehrman just published a book saying that the Goyim thought it up. Is Yeshua really needed, given that God is already in charge? You know, this is a, a question I deal with as a Messianic Jewish rabbi all the time. Jewish people say, why do I need Yeshua? I have God. God's my Savior. God's my King. God's my leader. What do I need Yeshua for? And my answer is simple, because God used Yeshua. You know, God is going to do what God is going to do. And if he used Yeshua, then Yeshua is the one he used. Isn't faith in the God of Israel enough? Is the idea of a divine Messiah something that stems from Greek beliefs and demigods? Weren't the earliest believers susceptible to Greek influence? And couldn't stories of demigods have inspired a colossal historic mistake about Yeshua? That's one thing we shouldn't be afraid to ask as we look into this. Maybe it's all a mistake, a misunderstanding. He's just a good Jewish kid who had a deep faith in God. If the divinity of a human redeemer figures a Greek notion, should we assume that the original Jewish founders of the Yeshua movement never believed in it? Some people do assume that. If the divine Messiah realization did not come from the earliest Jewish believers, then who dreamed it up? Is the idea of a Messiah who is, a div who is divine a contradiction with regard to God's nature? We're going to discuss that. Doesn't God say, I am not a man Jews for Judaism pushes that saying all the time in their videos. You can't believe in Jesus because God says, I am not a man. They omit that he walked as a man with Abraham. They omit the fact that God can appear as a man if he wants to. How is God omnipresent and running the whole universe while at the same time walking on earth as we Messianic Jews claim? What would happen if we started with Jewish sources and looked for evidence in a Jewish framework? By the way, the New Testament is a Jewish source. Uh, is the divine Messiah belief, the idea of the divine Messiah, is that consistent with the nature of God in the Hebrew Bible? Our session tomorrow morning will be all about God's nature in the Hebrew Bible and in Judaism and, the, it, and how that might relate to this question. How do we imagine for a second that a bunch of temple-worshiping Jews in the first century like Peter, James, and Paul would believe in a duality of divinity, father and son. What could induce strict monotheists to come up with an idea that seems to contradict this very monotheism? By the way, I'm only half done with my questions. I've got a lot of questions. Why was Yeshua so important to these early Jewish believers? 
What was so important about him? What made them say things like this? That the value of knowing Messiah surpassed all other things. And is that a perspective that we could come to ourselves? Why were they impassioned about, quote, gaining Messiah and being found in him? Why did the early believers want to always be with Messiah in the glorious future? Why did they believe that in the absence of his direct presence, you know, Yeshua was gone, he had, he had ascended, why did they believe that in the absence of his direct presence, now that he was gone, that Messiah was with them in the divine spirit? Why did they pray to Yeshua, directly asking him in Aramaic to return, and even making personal requests to him? Why did they place him alongside God as an object of their devotion? Why did they see him in the Shema as the Lord in the Shema alongside God in the Shema? Is understanding who Yeshua is merely something we want to believe in order to keep up our hope in a happy afterlife? Is that what this is all about? It's just an optimistic view because it gives us a better hope of an afterlife? Or is the glory of the Father truly reflected in the face of Yeshua? Is the light of God in the face of Yeshua a light that has meaning for us right now? What does the divine messiahship of Yeshua mean for us today? Is it a mere intellectual curiosity, or is knowing it a benefit beyond understanding? Well, I have a lot of questions. We only have four sessions. I'll do the best I can to cover all of these aspects that I just brought up. But before I go any further, any comment, question, or thought that has occurred to you so far? All right. I take it that's because you agree with everything I said so far. The divine Messiah realization was a scandal. We're going to say more later about how the earliest believers concluded that Yeshua was God alongside God. And I want to give you a little preview of that because I don't want to leave you hanging. Uh, just a, a quick preview. What was it that convinced them that Yeshua was God alongside God? It was appearances of Yeshua from heaven. And I'm going to explain to you later why they don't talk about it all that much in the New Testament. But there's enough evidence for us to draw this out. It was appearances of Yeshua from heaven that persuaded them that he was God alongside God. And we're going to parse that when we have time. They saw the glory of God reflected in the face of Yeshua the Messiah. They saw Yeshua enthroned at God's right hand and heavenly beings prostrating themselves before both God and Yeshua. They saw something new far beyond other kinds of divine agents, angelic beings, or glorified saints. Yeshua was not merely some kind of principal angel. He was not merely a new Moses. He surpassed the personified attributes of God, like the Logos, the wisdom, or the Memra, or the Dibur. And the realization of who he was scandalized the early believers. The eyewitnesses who say that they saw him from heaven actually had no reason to lie about it. The story of theirs made them blasphemers and heretics. It did not make them people able to raise large sums of money like televangelists today. None of them made their personal fortune off of this story that they told. They were Jews who did not intend to create a new theology. They were not like the Gnostics who, tend, who intended to blend ideas that were fundamentally incompatible, really, and that movement began in the second century. They were not intending to create a new theology. They were just Jews that something happened to that was so unexplainable 
They just did the best they could to keep up with it. God did something, and they just tried to keep up. That's all it was. They couldn't even explain it very well. It was left for theological councils later to try to come up with ways to explain it. They just experienced it, and you know maybe they would have used different language to say what it meant. And fortunately, they didn't have you know theologians there scrutinizing them and you know kicking them out if they didn't say it exactly right. They were troubled by and confused by the notion, just as we are today. It gets un- if you're not uncomfortable with the divinity of Messiah, maybe you haven't had a conversation with some uh, in our Jewish community about it. It, and when people start attacking it from a different point of view, if, if some you know, person who's read a little bit of scholarship and is into maybe belief that Jesus was a myth starts talking to you about all the reasons why, well, he's just like all those things the pagans believed in. You know, come on, the corn god who died in every winter and was reborn every spring. Come on, can't you see it? People can make fun of our belief pretty easily. And it can be intimidating. If, and imagine being belonging to a small group of Jewish monotheists in a world where no one is going to agree with you, where you're going to be marginalized and even given 39 lashes in the synagogue because you adhere to this belief. They were just as troubled by it as we are today, that God's nature could be simultaneously expressed in Messiah and God. Now, the earliest gospel to be written down was Mark. We're going to have a little experience in Mark here in just a minute. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to read from Mark chapter 14, if you want to go ahead and sort of prepare yourself for that. The earliest gospel to be written down was Mark, although I'm tempted to say, how do we answer the question, how do we know Mark was the earliest? I'm not going to do that. Mark was, just take it with a grain of salt. Mark was the earliest gospel to be written down. Near the end of the gospel, we have the story of Yeshua at his trial in front of the high priest in the Sanhedrin. Now, I'm going to have you read silently about Yeshua's trial in just a moment. And you're going to read Matthew, I mean, uh, Mark 14, 53 to 65. I'll call that reference out again. I think it's on your uh, notes. Mark 14, 53 to 65. But before you read it, I want to read out loud two scriptures that you need to understand are in the background of this. And I want them to be fresh in your mind. You're probably very aware of these scriptures, but I want to read them now so they're fresh in your mind. Daniel 7, 9 to 10. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His garment was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like lamb's wool. His throne was tongues of flames, its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire streamed before him, and thousands upon thousands served him, myriads upon myriads attended him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then, verses 13 to 14, As I looked on in the night vision, one like a son of man came with the clouds of heaven. He reached the ancient of days and was presented to him. Dominion, glory, and kingship were given to him. All people and nations of every language must serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall not be destroyed. Now with that in the background, read Mark 14, 53 through 65. I'll give you a minute. Now what I'm going to do is read you a little historical fiction version of the trial that I wrote from the perspective of Nicodemus. There he stood, possibly the end of everything good for Nicodemus. If this was God's man, and sometimes it seemed to him Yeshua was God's man, why couldn't he have come in a more conventional manner? Surely this trial would lead to more bloodshed, 
The impressiveness of his message was undeniable, but it was going to die with him. Yeshua stood in the great room of Caiaphas' house, a prisoner in danger of execution. They brought witnesses, many of them lying or misquoting him. Nicodemus was well aware of that. What they wanted was evidence that would get Pilate interested in the case, make him a threat to the Roman peace, and the problem of Yeshua would be handled. It was apparent from his expression that Caiaphas regarded the witnesses as contradicting each other. His head was in his hands, and he was clearly unhappy. Changing tactics, he addressed Yeshua directly. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? That impossibly calm man did not change his expression or move his body in any way. The seconds passed. In predictable anger, Caiaphas spoke again. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Something in Yeshua's aspect changed. He suddenly showed interest in the proceedings. And in a voice with authority that dwarfed Caiaphas, he responded, I am. Caiaphas and the others near him shrunk back abruptly. And you will see me, continued Yeshua, seated at the right hand of power. There was no mistaking these words from the section of Daniel about two thrones. And coming with the clouds of heaven. Now Nicodemus found that his own head was in his hands. Yeshua's fate was sealed. For blasphemy, there was no way out with this counsel. What do you think Yeshua was claiming about himself here? Why am I calling it blasphemy? Because Yeshua is alluding to a certain interpretation of Daniel 7 that they're all aware of. It came to be called later in Judaism the problem of two powers in heaven. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to have you read another story. This is going to be the story of Paul's great turning moment. Of course, people like to call it his conversion, but uh, we all know that Jews don't convert to being Jews. Uh, But it was a turning moment when he changed from being a persecutor to a believer. And I want you to think of Paul here the way he was before he wrote his letters. He believed he was serving God when he did these things. That is key to understanding the story. When he was persecuting Yeshua believers, he was persecuting them for God. He could have said, like Eric Liddell said about running, he could have said, I feel God's pleasure when I'm lashing these Messianic Jews. Paul was trying to bring Messiah. Why was Paul persecuting? He was part of a movement of radical Pharisees, probably of the Shammaite wing, were trying to bring Messiah by purifying Israel, by getting rid of all the heretics and the blasphemers, by getting Israel to to agree, getting Israel to be good Jews in the way they thought good Jews should be. He believed that when all Israel worshiped God in truth, Messiah would come, and he didn't think Yeshua was it. He saw the early believers in Yeshua as blasphemers. He was giving them 39 lashes in the synagogue to teach them to repent. He tried to get the early believers to blaspheme Yeshua by denying that Yeshua is Lord. What was the saying of the early believers? Yeshua is Lord. He was trying to get them to blaspheme and say Yeshua is not Lord, and they wouldn't say it. They took 39 lashes instead of saying that. But something happened on the way to Damascus. Would you read that story in Acts 9, verses 1 through 9? Acts 9, verses 1 through 9. Now what I want to do is to dramatize this passage also, telling it obviously from the point of view of Paul. These Nazarenes were dangerous, and Paul believed in this mission to root blasphemy out and do his part to make Israel ready for the real messianic time that was certain to come. The road to Damascus was not too long for this cause. 
He recalled the Greek Jew, Stephen, over whose stoning he had presided. Behold, he had said, I see the heavens opened. Paul had wanted to silence him as the blasphemy was surely coming next. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They had all started shouting and covering their ears. By Son of Man, he had meant Yeshua, as it was a phrase the Nazarenes used concerning him, making him equal with God. Paul rode on with the other men to question and probably give 39 lashes to some of the men at Damascus. Just as he thought about this, he was startled, falling from his horse roughly and painfully. Where did this light come from, brighter than the full sunlight? Paul looked up to be sure his horse did not bring his hooves down on him. As he prepared to roll to safety, a voice came from on high. Such a voice. Was it? It was. Saul, Saul, said the heavenly voice using his Hebrew name. Why are you persecuting me? Paul's brilliant mind worked quickly. Was this God persecuting? Paul was serving God. Besides, how could anyone persecute God? Who are you, master? He said reverently, beginning to stand so he could bow. What he heard next brought him down to the ground again like a sack of wheat. I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and I will show you what to do. Numbly he rose, eyes still hurting from the light. He could not see the men with him. He couldn't see anything at all. My eyes will recover, he thought. But what was that light? Was it? It was the divine glory. Standing, he tottered now, pressure rising in his chest, a debilitating dread. He was blind and his eyes were not recovering. Yeshua was at the right hand of God. Everything Paul stood for now seemed up for question. If Yeshua was at the right hand, wait, that was what he had said to the chief priests, the right hand of power. It was true. But Stephen, the men in Damascus, Paul's career, he was more than blind and numb. He was dumbstruck. This changes everything, he thought. And then he said to the men, I cannot see. Bring us to Damascus. What, you know, before he knew the identity of the speaker, who did Paul think this heavenly voice was? He surely thought it was God. What was the bright light that Paul saw on the road? God has a light that comes off of him in most of the manifestations he shows us. It's the kavod, the glory. And after this event, what did Paul realize about Yeshua and God? Well, as we begin to explore this, we're going to have to talk about monotheism. We're going to have to talk about, and especially the talk tomorrow morning is going to focus on details of this. But I want to, I want to make a general statement about monotheism and say that there are two equally valid perspectives. One of the things I love uh, in a paradigm shift that you know, I experienced, and maybe you experienced this more, is the Jewish way of thinking is usually both and, not either or. I love both and. It's so much more fun than either or. There are two equally valid perspectives, you know, just like when they're arguing in Fiddler on the Roof. You're right, but you're also right. You can't both be right. He's right too. I love that. Exodus 15:11 has one perspective. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? So God is a God among the gods. In other words, there are multiple divinities, and God is one of the divinities. But he's an incomparable divinity among the divinities. This is one perspective. I'm going to say in a minute how that perspective is true. But then there's another perspective in the Torah. Deuteronomy 4.35. The Lord, he is God, and there is none beside him. Which is it? Is it who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Or is it the Lord, he is God, and there is none beside him? Yes, 
One way you could think of it is there's divinity with a small d. I like to call them semi-divine beings. But maybe you could just call them divine beings with a small d if that works for you. There are other beings whose glory and nature surpass human beings. And from the point of view of human beings, we could regard them as gods. In fact, when a judge is acting in his capacity as judge with total authority over your life, you could even regard a judge as a god. He is as a god to you. His verdict, his decree, is as the decree of God, either against you or for you. And in the Hebrew Bible, that occurs. But then there's divinity with a capital D. And that is where God is unique. This is about God being the greater than whom none exists. This is about God being the without end. And as they said in Highlander, there can be only one. Sorry, I like to put a few geek references. Okay, nobody laughed at that. All right, God has a transcendent uniqueness. It is not that God is the highest in the category of other beings. It is God is a being apart in a category of his own. When you are thinking of divinity that way, then you say, the Lord, he is God, there is none besides him. But when you are thinking in the other perspective, which is also a valid perspective, that there are other beings whose glory and nature surpass human beings, then you can say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Both are valid. Now, when we talk about Yeshua as divine Messiah, are we saying that he's a divine being in the smaller sense? Are we saying that he's, he's, his glory and his nature surpass our own? Many people think so. In fact, many people are willing to say that Yeshua is the principal semi-divine being under God. That God is in a category alone, and Yeshua is not actually in the same category with God. He's in the lower category of divinity, but he's the highest of that lower category of divinity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Yeshua is equal with God as the greater than whom none exists. I'm saying that Yeshua is in a class apart, and he and God alone share that class, and they are one while at the same time being different. Now, ditheism, you can easily see compared to monotheism, what ditheism means. Ditheism is the idea that there are two gods in heaven. I want everyone to say binatarian monotheism. Doesn't it feel good to say that? I think that Larry Hurtado coined that term. I, I'll try a couple times throughout my uh, seminar to refer you guys to some books that were primary sources for, for me. And the first one was a book with a fantastic title, Larry Hurtado, how on earth did Jesus become a God? Great book. One of, one of the most helpful of all the books I looked at. I think he's the one who coined this term, binatarian monotheism. That is the idea that the one God is two in one. It's the idea that Messiah is God alongside God. And this is where I want you to understand the early believers didn't just come right out and say Yeshua is God. It frustrates us to no end. Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door and say, show me in the Bible where it says Yeshua is God. Uh, and, and some people, you know, drive them crazy. I'm going to explain more later why the New Testament doesn't do it, but I'm going to give you a little bit of that now. What the early believers do and what they do not do is an important thing to observe. Number one, they did describe him on a level equal with God. They said things like the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is on the podium with God, and everybody else is prostrate. He and God are in a class apart. 
They also corporately and individually showed devotion to him in ways reserved by Jews for God. We're going to talk about those in depth in our third uh, session tomorrow night. Hymns, prayer in the name, prayer to him, calling on his name, a ritual meal in his presence, creeds about him, and in some cases, prophecies given by him from heaven. They obeyed him, believed that they were in him, believed that he was present, imitated him, received mysterious communication from him, giving them guidance and peace. I hope you can see that they didn't think he was like the angel of the Lord. They didn't think he was like Enoch. They didn't think he was like Moses. Nobody was like feeling the presence of Moses and communing with him and having a meal at, a ta- at Moses' table. They had a simple creed about Yeshua. Yeshua is Lord. And they said it was only possible to affirm this if one had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I want you to understand, they were very superstitious about this saying, Yeshua is Lord. They didn't think this was just an intellectual thing that you could say. For you to really believe Yeshua is Lord, the Holy Spirit had to turn something on inside of you to enable you to say that. I'll try to give you a scripture reference on that later. I can't remember the reference now where Paul says it. It's in Corinthians. I just don't know if it was first, second, and which chapter, but it's in there. It's in the book somewhere. They had a simple Aramaic prayer they used at their weekly ritual meal. Maranatha, our Lord come. Whereas we have no evidence of Jews invoking angels or other agent figures for God in any comparable manner. They used the Shema and a well-known passage from Isaiah 45 about the uniqueness of God as texts about Yeshua. They made analogies and used careful circumlocutions. You know, a circumlocution is where you avoid saying something, but you say it indirectly, to describe the mysterious relationship between Messiah and God without getting overly specific. That's why you get all these frustrating terms in the New Testament, like the image of the invisible God, or the radiance of the glory of God, and you're just like, why don't you just say it? They made use of linguistic differentiation between Lord and God, okay? What I'm saying there is they realize that Lord and God mean the same thing, but they made a distinction. As a matter of fact, whenever you see in the New Testament the writers talking about the Lord, in nearly every case, they do not mean the God of Israel as typically. They mean Jesus. They mean Yeshua. When they say the Lord, they usually mean Yeshua. They made a linguistic differentiation between Lord and God as a way of describing Messiah in relation to God. So all these expressions we see in the New Testament could start to make more sense to us if we understand that. God our Father and the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. There is one God the Father and one Lord, Messiah Yeshua. They described heavenly visionary experiences of Yeshua in heaven, having his own divine glory. So we find expressions like the glory of God in the face of Messiah Yeshua. Or, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. They did not say Yeshua is God directly, but described his divinity always in relation to God. So they would say the word was with God, the word was God. They always put the two alongside each other. It was okay to say the word was God as long as you put it beside the statement the word was with God. You see what you're protecting here. And almost anything I say to try to simplify that is going to be wrong. Like if I try to say 
They were trying to communicate that Yeshua was part of God, but not all of God. You can't say that. So let's just stick to the language that's there. It's easier. So I, I do say things like God alongside God, or he shared, this is Richard Balcom's phrase, he shared God's transcendent uniqueness. I really like that. They did not try to specify the relationship between Yeshua and God beyond a certain mysterious vagueness, but they did write as those who had encountered something incomprehensible, which they felt compelled to believe and put into practice, but which they were reluctant to describe with too much precision. Now, where do we go from here? Well, in the next session, we'll talk about God in the Hebrew Bible and Judaism. I don't know how long your drashas usually are on Shabbat, It'll be slightly long tomorrow, Uh, but hopefully it will keep your interest. In the third session tomorrow night, we'll talk about the early believers and how they showed devotion to the divine Messiah. And then in the fourth and final session, we'll talk about the example of the early believers, that's Sunday morning, and what the divine Messiah realization means for us today. And I hope that while I'm here, I have opportunities to, you know, socialize, talk with you, Hope you'll ask me questions, and in fact, if there are any now, I'm glad to take them. Although I might say that'll be tomorrow. Yes, First Corinthians twelve three, great verse for you to know and think about in context of what we're saying. Thank you for that. That's the one that says no one can say Yeshua is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians twelve three, and obviously Paul didn't mean no one can mouth the words. He meant no one can truly believe it and own it unless God turns something on inside of them by the Spirit. I do want to say this about the Holy Spirit because we're not going to have time to get into this in the seminar. In the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit is called both the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Yeshua. Well, which is it? Yeah, well, the Greek Orthodox have a really interesting understanding of the internal relationship of God and, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit that they so interrelate, they're inseparable, and they're constantly interacting with each other. It's like a system that's in constant interaction with, uh, with its, uh, its various, I hate to use the word parts, but I don't know a better word to use. And so, yes, the Spirit is the Spirit of the, spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit's Spirit, I guess. I, I mean, it's what is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit is the presence of the absent Yeshua. The Holy Spirit is the presence of the absent Yeshua. And this is a theme in the Gospel of John, the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate, is the presence of the absent Yeshua. Any other questions or thoughts? We had so much fun at my congregation trying to uh, work out what binatarian monotheism would look like if we diagrammed it, and we made little diagrams of the Trinity based on better understanding. We had a lot of fun getting the, some of the details of it, which we probably won't have time to get into here unless you can join in some social setting and we can get out a whiteboard and start drawing with different colored pens. It's a lot of fun to do it. Well, then I will uh, let Rabbi Silverman take 